Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Wonky Show. A review of the graduate route is coming just as international applications tick down. We'll discuss the implications. Uh, it's REF 2029 now. We'll explain the delay. How many graduates does the UK need? It's all coming up. What we need to do is to move from that supply side, look, everything's going to be fine if we just produce more of this stuff, to a really hard set of strategies and conversations about how do the things that we produce get deployed. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here for non-uniform day with their board games to play, as usual, three terrific guests. Justine Andrew is Head of Education and Head of the University Partnership Office at KPMG. Justine, your highlight of the week, please. KPMG in Leeds, we had the KPMG kick-off Christmas event where we had 200 people, we had children singing, we had Christmas trees and we had uh, a plethora of pork products. So what is not to like about that? Very festive. And in Manchester, Andy Westwood is Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester. Andy, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, well, I'm going to sneak in two, uh, if that's all right, Jim. Uh, the first is is sort of very much work-related, and it's uh, a report that we managed to get out this week. Uh, Diane Coyle, Stella Urker and I on universal basic infrastructure, uh, which uh, has taken us about six years to write. So... Uh, we're very pleased to get it out. It's published through the Bennett Institute, so if anybody wants to go and look at it, uh, hopefully they can find it and enjoy it. And the second highlight of the week, which I wanted to share, was that I'm just about to join the board of the University of Wolverhampton. Oh, how exciting. Great stuff. And link to, link to the report, of course, in the show notes. And in Prestatin, Michael Salmon is news editor at Wonky. Michael, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Yeah, it's been another you know, equally high-caliber week in Westminster. Um, I think my just particular highlight was um, Gillian Keegan being asked at the Education Committee whether she was pro or against poisoning her own children, um, and she did. She didn't answer. So you know, we'll have to we'll have to find out. Well, there you go. So we start this week with international students. And Andy, it's been a week of downs and downs. Downs and downs. Well, yet another week of headlines on uh, migration figures and the government's response to them. It's uh, it's it's a, a familiar kind of list of things for universities that are interested in these things. And that, of course, these days is all universities. Uh, we've got a, a, a series of announcements, really, from government. The first is a, a, a new package of... Um, of measures to bring down migration. We talked about migration figures recently on the podcast, so it's not taken very long for the uh, package to kind of bring those numbers down to emerge. The most significant one for universities is that the the Migration Advisory Committee is going to be reviewing the graduate route, Uh, but there are also some quite significant measures around increasing salary thresholds for spouses, on uh, on kind of regular visas as well as kind of uh, obviously the measures on uh, spouses uh, of uh, of people studying. Then we've had a rehash, another re- uh, Rwanda treaty, another visit of another Home Secretary to Rwanda to sign a treaty, and the presentation of legislation to the House on what Parliament can do to override essentially anyone's objections to Rwanda being seen as a safe country. So. Uh, all sorts of stuff um, that the government have thrown together. In the midst of all of that, obviously, the immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, has resigned. So we we currently, uh, at least as we're recording this, uh, don't have an immigration minister. So some might say this has all been a bit knee-jerk, um, a bit of a political panic, a bit of political chaos, uh, but with, with um, potentially very significant ramifications, not just in terms of the detail of these measures that are being proposed, but also just that wider culture, that wider environment, that wider debate about universities and, uh, and the economy and which matters more to the government. The headlines on migration or kind of building an economy that um, might, uh, fingers crossed, actually work. Having already banned overseas master's students from bringing family members to the UK, I have asked the Migration Advisory Committee to review the graduate route to prevent abuse, 
to protect the integrity and quality of the UK's outstanding higher education sector. It needs to work in the best interests of the UK, supporting the pathway into high-quality jobs for the global talent pool, but reducing opportunities for abuse. Madam Deputy Speaker, this package of measures, taken in addition with the measures on student dependence that we have already announced in May, means that around 300,000 fewer people will be eligible to come to the UK than were coming last year. Well, Michael, as well as all of that, we've had some signals on uh, international recruitment for January, haven't we? Um, yeah, so the recruitment platform Enrolly, um, I think over the weekend, published its own sort of predictions based on its really large sample of international students that it sort of has on its books. I think there's sort of more than 58,000. And it does this every quarter and has tended to be quite accurate in the past, or at least sort of be quite a good bellwether. Um, and it re- really, the, you know, the, the predictions here were really, really negative for the January intake. Um, you know, there was words like collapse being thrown about, especially talking about the Nigerian market. Um, and and we've heard from elsewhere, um, there, was, there was something from study portals as well this week. And, you know, I think everybody who's watching that market is seeing that the, the January postgraduate intake there is going to be far lower than 2023, when admittedly it was very, very high. Um, but, you know, there, so there's the new dependent rules coming in. But I think even more than that, it, you know, it's just about affordability um the 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 economy there is not in a good shape the the sort of foreign exchange um is is much worse than it was a year ago so it it is looking like universities that have been doing a very good job we could say of diversifying into that market are going to really suffer um you know but enrolly was also predicting indian students to fall quite significantly as well um which obviously on on the sort of macro scale is a is a more important market for the sector so yeah it could be quite a um a tough january ahead which is you know it's and it's not like things have all been good up to here for the for the sector's finances Hmm. justine i guess you know on one level some universities that didn't have a great summer will have been hoping that January made up some financial ground, that will be tough. And and to, to, to another extent, in general, if these numbers suggest that international demand is, I think the word might be softening, uh, and, and this was a, these numbers that Michael talks about were before the, the you know the, the signal gets sent about the graduate route. This 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 puts universities, a lot of universities, in real financial difficulty, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and it just compounds all of the existing conversations that I think we've been having across the sector, doesn't it? For the last, you know, it, it feels for the last uh, a couple of years, really. I mean, I think as you mentioned, um, and it's that link, isn't it, between. You know, it's a free market, so it's it, it, you want universities to be commercial and go where the demand is, uh, which is exactly what you know boards have been looking at. Um, and you know, in a true commercial market, you would have control over that. Um, but of course, they're in the worst of both worlds because it, it, it's looking for those markets, but then you don't always have that control um, in terms of numbers, in terms of policy, and the impact. Um, you know, the universities are working hard; they're looking at portfolios, they're looking at the core. But I think it's a really tricky line for boards to manage, right? Because what would you do? You'd say, well, of course, go where demand is, look at the opportunities. But you've also got to focus on that core. You've got to look at the core portfolio, the home market, the other areas that are going to um, build that resilience. Um, but it's a very difficult line to manage because ultimately the funding model is not fit for purpose at the moment. And I don't know whether this would force that discussion next year, whether there is a quid pro quo in this that says actually this will force... Uh, the conversation that the sector wants to have about the overall um, financial sustainability. Hmm. Andy, was this inevitable? I mean, you, you know, one of the things I think uh, I could I could argue is that if if the sector does, you know, many 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 times better than it said it would on recruitment, and you add in uh, dependence too, with this government, there was inevitably going to be a swing back on the pendulum, wasn't there? Yeah, I think I think so. I think um, if if you look at the two, well, probably the two most important things uh, to the government uh, at the moment, you know, one is managing borders, and the other is trying to get some growth into the economy. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> those are related. They're just not they're not very convenient related when you kind of start to think about the politics, and particularly the politics of of this government. And and Suella Braverman and and Robert Jenrick, to a lesser extent. Um, has, has in some senses played a blinder because she tried to get all this stuff through when she was Home Secretary 
and uh, the education department and the treasury took played the economic card said you know we need we need some of this stuff but we you know the student uh, international students are particularly valuable and and it was all pushed back now this you know this just might be explained by the fact that she was a terrible home secretary and can't do government delivery um, but um um, out of office, the government have completely kind of caved into her agenda. Uh, and and worse than that, have kind of backed themselves into a corner on immigration as the totemic policy, even over kind of all of that sort of economic growth stuff, which is causing them all sorts of problems around cost of living, around regional inequality, around trade, uh, around uh, stagnation. You know, they've, they've, they're, they're going for this one because it's the one that suits their populist credentials um, and opens up m- the, the most significant dividing line with an election in the in the offing. But it's but it's still a huge, huge gamble for them because, of course, there's no real kind of um, guarantee that any of these numbers, whether they're whether for illegal uh, immigration or legal migration, are, are going to come down significantly ahead of an election. But but that's where the politics is, and um, and if that's where the politics is, that's where universities, universities uh, management teams, and universities boards are going to have to be too. Michael, obviously this is a conversation principally about international, but there were some really interesting numbers in the student loan company figures in terms of this year, in-year numbers, which showed home domicile PGT down really quite significantly and home domiciled undergrad down significantly and, and down further than UCAS figures would have suggested. So there's there's something else going on here which will be worrying for folks in the home market too, isn't there? Um- yeah, there is. Yeah, so we've just had um, UCAS end of cycle data today, and as you said, we had SLC student support data out last week, which is about how much students are taking out loans. Um, and a- as we spotted and uh, um, and sort of wrote about, um, yeah, the postgraduate masters loans are down. Was it sort of fifteen percent around? around don't, maybe don't quote me on that, but it was a big sort of fall in the teens um, of you know a loan that perhaps people don't really sort of pay attention to so much um, and, you know, which doesn't necessarily indicate falling postgraduate numbers of the same extent. There could be fewer students taking out loans, but, you know, there's definitely something going on there. It's, it's something we've been seeing for a long time that sort of home students in the wider sort of PGT landscape have become squeezed. You know, the numbers have increased, but, the you know, the international proportions of PGT have just increased so much. You know, I mean, there's sort of, talk you hear sometimes about whether home students see master's level study as sort of the the same aspiration uh, whether you know those who are really serious about doing research and doing more study want to just go you know directly into into phd routes um you know that's obviously still quite a minority at the moment but um yeah the you know postgraduate basically the uh, you know the, the postgraduate market has just it just gone haywire really in terms of who's on the courses which providers teach them wh- which subject areas are you know what the staff students ratio is i mean it's not helped by the fact that you know all the regulatory attention in england is, and, and elsewhere really is on is is on the undergraduate you know outcomes um and you know the, the, there's a real sense that you know the sector's become very dependent on the money from um, from postgraduate as a whole, but I mean, especially international postgraduate, um, and but all, and that that necessity to recruit there is masking problems around you know delivery and quality and and the sort of size and shape of the sector. Justine, one of the things I often say is that I, I have this sense that higher education isn't really suited to very very rapid expansion, and and I guess by definition, I assume I also mean that higher education isn't really suited to very very rapid contraction either either in its student numbers or or finances is there is there a kind of mismatch between the sort of governance that higher education has in general either on quality or on you know infrastructure and whatever and, and the kind of drama that we're seeing in the sorts of numbers that, that we've had over the past couple of years well it's a perennial debate isn't it and there's sort of size and shape. if you were starting from a blank sheet of paper would you design would you design um university governance structure uh, as it is at the moment no um, but 
is it you know we are starting from where we are at the moment in terms of those structures um, and people are are adapting are trying but the infrastructure that sits there is very hard to change right you've got a huge estate cost you've got a huge people cost um, and lots of investment going in as well so yeah i think it is a really tricky um agility uh, is something that boards are going to have to grapple with ever increasing i think going forward and it brings up these perennial issues as you look forward as well in terms of um you know, mergers, growth. Um, if you look to the Australian market, this isn't isn't just something that's affecting the UK market. Of course, this is a global phenomenon, right? Um, so in Australia, you know, universities are a lot larger, and even there, looking at uh, M and A activity in terms of mergers, it's it's a discussion that's ongoing uh, in the UK. It's probably something that gets raised uh, all the time in these sorts of conversations. But you know, is there something that's going to have to happen? Uh, going forward because of this this pressure. Andy, I guess, you know, sometimes there's, you know, kind of restructures of professional services. Sometimes there's, you know, taking out a layer of management in the faculty school department, you know, kind of structures. Sometimes there's actual course closures where programmes are hard to recruit to. Um, but actually over in FE and schools, there's lots and lots of group structures now, kind of mergers or semi-mergers and so on. We've seen hardly any of that in HE in the UK. That's Is that... You know, is that, as Justine says, you know, this kind of mergers thing, is that where we're going to have to go, do you think? Well, I think we're already going there. Uh, there are uh, two or three sort of group structures already operating in HE uh, that, that tend to include all of those sectors. So bits of schools, bits of further education. Um, London South Bank is a very kind of high profile example. Coventry, um, Bucks New University, I think, you know, these are all kind of places that are... Uh, going down those lines and then you've also got kind of uh, um, big college groups that are sort of expanding upwards into higher education so Newcastle College Group um, and um, and one or two others so so it's you know that that's already happening and I think I think for for lots of institutions in in particular parts of the country with particular types of sort of provision and specialism I think I think more and more places will be looking at that kind of thing as well as and we can see this dotted around the sector news as well as all those other things that you already mentioned uh, you know closures restructuring um, I mean it's quite interesting I think you know the, the term we've commented lots of times in in um, uh, in in kind of sector conversations about the 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 increasing turnover of vice chancellors and there will be a, a wave of new vice chancellors kind of coming in at this this period over the last 12 months over the next 12 months who who will probably be asked these questions uh, interview about how they're going to approach this uncertainty and the kind of threats in particular markets and i suspect uh, the the interview panels will be rather more interested in the answers to this than they might be answers to kind of where are you going to put us in the league tables um so it's 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 tough and uh, and i think kind of all all of those options have to be on the table as as institutions uh, either with new vice chancellors or kind of uh, uh, existing ones uh, start to write a strategy that's going to get them through the next three to five years. Michael, risk is everywhere. And obviously, there are big risks here for higher education providers. But I guess for students, you know, if I was an international student applying now, I wouldn't be sure if I will ever get on a graduate route. Um, and actually, if I was just a kind of, you know, if I was an undergraduate at, at, a, at a university, I'd be worried that my departmental course might not exist, or at least not exist in the same way by the time I get perhaps to my third year. Plus, of course, all the financial, a lot of the financial risk has been transferred to me now because I've got to pay back my loan for 40 years rather than 30 years. But this, the transfer of risk to students can't be doing de student decision-making any good, can it? Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, I, I, you know, the, 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 the students paying more for less um, refrain is, is obviously something we've gone over many, many times. But, you know, I think just in the sort of international PGT um, sort of situation, there is clearly something to be said about... Um, you know, how does uncertainty over the existence of the graduate route affect student decision making? Student decision making that's sort of happening right now for January, um, you know, and w this will be being reported in the papers and, for, you know, influencing students who are thinking of applying in September. You know, th there's this sort of question about, you know, do students, ca can the sector recruit enough international students, given that this is the only real source of, so, of income where they can, you know, t sort of 
cover costs. Um, you know, can they re recruit that without the graduate route or with hesitancy about the graduate route? You know, just on the terms of you know the quality of the education that's offered. You know, will students be will international students still be looking at the sector and thinking you know a year of study here and then immediately returning home? Um, is still something that's really good for me, is going to advance my prospects, is going to make me learn, is going to turn me into a more rounded person. You know, and they will be having conversations with, you know, previous family members, friends who've done the same thing, and will be asking about the quality of the experience, um, you know, how much contact time they had, how many students were in a lecture, um, you know, who the lecturers were, how good the assessment was, all, all these kind of questions, which I think are, are sort of really um, straining and fraying at the moment. Um, yeah, but uh, as you say, it's sort of, it's the same kind of uncertainty for undergraduates who are being, you know, it, it, for home undergraduates who are being told, you know, do an apprentice, um, do, do an apprenticeship, or, or, you know, think of other options maybe HE is a big ripoff maybe you know th so there's there's a lot of uncertainty in applicant minds for different kind of policy reasons, but um, you know it all adds up to a to a, a you know a, a difficult future for for recruitment. Yeah, and Justine, I guess you know uncertainty. Whenever I read the FT, uncertainty equals lack of investment, and I guess that's true for individuals. It's true for uh, businesses. That this whole sense that the country's in chaos is not good news, is it? No, and if you talk to any any business uh, any business organisation, certainty is the one thing that you want. You know, we work, many others do, universities do on a three to five year planning cycle. Um, you know, how, how, how do you manage that um, with, with this amount of change? You've got the impact, as you were talking, Michael, I was thinking, you know, the impact on staff at universities is going to be significant um, with some of these changes. The devil's in the detail, but that needs to be worked through. There's implications for businesses in terms of recruitment of talent um, because of these changes and where you focus. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what, what people want to drive that economic growth is, is certainty. And that is in, in somewhat short supply at the moment. Well, that's all very bleak. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name is Emily Nordman and I am a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Glasgow. And along with my colleague Kiara Holland, who founded the University of Glasgow's Neurodiversity Network, but who has also currently lost her voice, We've written about our latest study on how students use lecture recordings, but particularly those students who are neurodivergent and or disabled. What we found very strongly is that in stark contrast to the usual concerns about lecture recordings and attendance, we found that the provision of recordings can actually help a diverse range of students maintain engagement by giving them just a little bit of flexibility to help deal with health problems, caring responsibilities, and of course the need to work through a cost of living and funding crisis. We also consider how the discourse on lecture recordings fits into the wider context of hybrid working and question whether some academics might want to take a look at their own working patterns before demanding that students attend every single session in person. Now, next up, Justine, there's a bombshell delay to the ref. Yes, indeed. Um, I like the way you asked the non-academic person uh, on the panel to talk about uh, talk about the ref. Um, but taking it back to what I suppose we're we're talking about before then in terms of economic growth what does the ref do right it drives research excellence it provides accountability for public investment in research which is what we want more of and it informs the allocation of you know two billion or whatever of block funding so it, it's right that this sort of consultation and, and thought process goes through um i guess the headline as you alluded to is it's not ref 28 anymore but it's ref 29 uh, the timetable has been pushed back um, so instead of submission late 27, the submission will be um, in late December 28. Um, there is ongoing consultation. Um, so there's more to come in spring next year. Well, there'll be a summary report and further clarity on the timeline. Um, in January, there's going to be more detail on open access requirements. And there's an ongoing review around uh, the um, sort of people and culture uh, and environment elements, including the waiting, I think. Um, but the big headline is, is this delay? And the reasons given around it's the preparation of using HESA data to determine the volume measures. It's breaking that link between staff and individual submissions and reworking the institutional codes of practice. So, so that is the certainty that has been put out in terms of the delay. But there are further consultations to come. Um, but, but reading the... Um, reading a release you know it, it's it's thoughtful they've listened to the sector there's been a lot of good submissions and as they given the importance of this it, it's right that it is um it is consulted on properly and reviewed 
Michael, I guess there's always a balance between getting it right, listening to the sector, as Justine says, and so on, and then you know a, a process which engenders and 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 delivers further kind of uncertainty and delay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Research England and the other funding bodies, as Justine said, have been taking a very consultative approach. They've been gathering feedback. They've been, you know, writing for wonky about how how they're listening to the sector. Um, There's been various opportunities for feedback. Um, Obviously, people and culture wasn't included the first time, so they opened a second consultation. Um, You know, there's still the initial decisions really weren't at the level of detail which institutions need to say okay let's start planning you know they were quite broad strokes and um, even the sort of you know new updates we've had yesterday aside from the delay there's you know there's still loads more work to be done so that consultative process is obviously very nice but it slows things down um, and I think this is the sort of result of it um, that you know people in the sector in research offices are just thinking we have no idea exactly how we need to be planning for the next ref and we don't it doesn't even feel like it's very soon that we will know um and you know that i think from what we've heard behind the scenes there's been some you know quite strong words for the funding bodies that um you know with this scale of change of sort of you know sort of fiddling with the plumbing um and introducing new data requirements and all this kind of stuff that more time is needed and and it's been extended which you know i think a full year makes sense it's not a massive delay given the you know the ref's sort of long cycle um and you know hopefully this will kind of settle some of the uncertainty and 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 sort of angst about some of the other changes and and there's enough space now for proper conversations about what are quite complicated and technical issues that need sorting Andy, it's only a few weeks ago that uh, Michelle Donnellan um, was kicking wokery out of science. Does does this delay kind of minimise or maximise the chances of that people and culture stuff being caught up in, um, you know, some some more of these culture wars stuff? You know, is this about where which, which end of the party Michelle jumps towards as the as the election gets closer? Well, let's just say that the chances of Michelle Donnellan being anywhere near the ref in twenty twenty nine are practically zero so um i don't think we need to worry about about that very much but i mean you you raise an interesting point not least in in the context of that uncertainty that we've been talking about in international figures and kind of domestic income and and policy and all the rest of it there's there's a there's there's an amazing kind of dissonance that goes on in universities when you start start talking about the ref so entirely sensible i'm sure to delay it to, to 2029 you know it's a big process as justine says it hands out a lot of cash you know you've got to do this properly but 2029 is potentially two general elections away. <laughs> uh, not just one, two, um, and two spending reviews away. So, you know, there's a lot of assumptions in universities and in um, the kind of research community that this ref um, that is now going to run in 2028, 2029 is, um, is going to happen exactly as we think it's going to happen. So universities, you know, including my own, currently kind of thinking through how to prepare uh, uh, staff and kind of recruitment towards that ref. And, and it's... Um, Given that sort of political uncertainty about whether people are going to be, whether the next government or the one after that, uh, God knows how many science ministers that will be, um, are going to be uh, interested in QR in the same way, whether they're going to spend this amount of money on research and development kind of across the board. You know, that's all up for grabs. Almost nobody would say with any certainty there's going to be a department for science and, uh, and technology that Michelle currently leads. So why are we so um, sure <laughs> that, that everything about the ref is going to happen in exactly the way that we think it is? When, when everything else in higher education policy and politics generally says that policy churn is a problem. And I think, I think the answer to that is, is that, is that lots of universities like it. You know, we like the ref, we like it as a planning tool. We like it as a way of kind of recruiting and promoting people. But, uh, uh, but well, because we like it, we, we, refuse to consider that it that it might be impacted by this this huge short termism that kind of pervades virtually everything else in public policy so you know there's a there's there's a big question for um for universities for management teams and for boards you know why why do you think this ref in two general elections time two spending reviews time is going to work in exactly the way that we think it's going to today and and i would say i wouldn't be so sure 
And and just before we move off this, Justine, there's 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 something really important, I, I guess, that universities can do in terms of impact. Yeah, I was, I was just reflecting as um, Andy was talking there about you know it it's that ultimate dissonance, isn't it, between the long term nature of research and as you say th- this sort of reactive. Uh, policy situation in which we find ourselves but but one of the things I think lots of institutions are focusing on is that impact point is working um, with businesses um, and with a greater breadth of businesses the NCUB state of the relationship report came out this week some really good case studies in there we need more of them right and this isn't just I suppose my challenge out with of the sector and for non-sector um, people listening to this podcast, I'm sure there are some who listen, is this, is this isn't just something that universities need to think about, something that business needs to think about. Some businesses are very good uh, at reaching into universities and working with them, some aren't. And I think there's a big education piece for how businesses can work better um, with universities across research projects um, to, to drive that, that, that innovation and R&D that we know needs to happen to drive the economy, right? It's not just in universities, it's in partnerships as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase.
And finally this week, a new report calls for more graduates and more education, Michael. Yeah, so this is um, uh, the lovely titled Ending Stagnation, a New Economic Strategy for Britain, which is from the Resolution Foundation, um, uh, from LSE, and I think from either from or, or sponsored by the Nuffield Foundation. Um, and it's, this is really a massive, massive project with the, the idea that the UK doesn't have and does need an economic strategy is the sort of at the heart of it. The report, the sort of final report has appeared. And, you know, we had Jeremy Hunt and Keir Starmer were both speaking at the launch. There's been lots of other very readable and interesting little sort of sub-publications that have come out around. You know, there was one from David Willits with his sort of greatest hits on how he would change HE if he was still in a minister. There's been lots about apprenticeships and the skills system. Um, but yeah, this final report, um, as I said, is very focused on a sort of high-level national economic strategy, probably with an with an eye to Labour coming in and trying to sort of catch Keir Starmer's attention and others in his team. Um, so it emphasises things like the role of the UK's second cities. It spends quite a lot of time talking about Manchester and Birmingham, saying that you know more growth is needed there, comparing the UK and um, you know the sort of disparity between London and the other large cities in the UK compared to other say European countries where it's you know just this 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 enormous gulf in output and productivity doesn't exist. Yeah, and on graduates, as you said, it, it, it does suggest we need a lot more, but we need to think about where they are, um, and they need to be sort of powering the country's economy. We need to get them into the second cities and the cold spots and the places where they are, where, where they currently not, and where they could they're really needed for productivity growth. Um, and then there's quite a lot of the sort of usual stuff about non-academic routes and you know fiddling around with the the apprenticeships levy um, and 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 that sort of thing. But you know the the ideas as you've written on the site around sort of um, getting more graduates but not in the sort of uncontrolled growth and you know just let everyone grab as many young people as they can and so that FE suffers and and that and you know that the sector sort of just about hangs on it's more about thinking strategically about okay how do we make um, more provision of all kinds of tertiary provision um, and how do we do it in a way that's sort of planned strategic um, and you know dare I say, fulfills a sort of levelling up objective as well as a growth objective. Now, Andy, at the risk of uh, attracting the ire of people who will say that Birmingham is not in the north, <laughs> uh, it's not actually been very fashionable to talk about northern big cities for a long time, has it? Hasn't it? It's not stopped me. Uh, well, and, and uh, I mean, I think I think economically, what this report tells you is that everywhere is in the north, <laughs> apart from London and the southeast, in, in at least in terms of economic yeah. performance. Um, and you know, that regional inequality is just it just kind of shines out as a real problem of our uh, of our our economy both in kind of productivity and sort of um wages and 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 in human capital terms the the gaps the differences between um the stock of human capital however people have got their qualifications and you know the ucas data also this week uh um shows just how different the the progression rates are from some region well from most regions uh compared to uh, uh london uh, are so i mean but it's a great report as you'd expect from from the resolution foundation you know with david willits in the chair Torsten, uh, um, Torsten Bell. Uh, uh, you can you can see his hand. You can almost hear his voice in lots of uh, in lots of this stuff. And it, and it's well worth a read. I think I think um, you know going back sort of really to the conversation about ref and e and even the conversation about immigration. You know this is the thing that that politicians most care about. Uh, over the next five to ten years, this is what's got to change uh, because everything else flows from it. Uh, decisions about what what universities uh, do, how they're funded, whether you have a tertiary system, uh, what you do with FE, what you do with apprenticeships, all of it kind of stems from how do you get growth and productivity going in the economy. And um, the uh, so I mean I would I would recommend everybody reads at least the first chapter, which is called Starting from Here. Um, the the you wouldn't want to <laughs> you, you wouldn't start you, from here. Yeah, the, the you wouldn't want to bit is silent. Uh, but it uh, but it comes out sort of loud and clear if that's not a contradiction um, and because it is it is um, a, an absolute horror story uh, um, stagnating wages firm performance low investment on virtually every kind of um, crucial indicator we are underperforming uh, um, uh, comparative countries in the OECD and and in Europe. Um, and and it's getting worse. And so, you know, the need for a, um, the next government to to do something long term uh, and stick to it is uh, is is getting kind of more and more important. And that's why, you know, that's why 
the uh, the Starmer labor mission of getting growth and productivity going is is the one that we need to speak to. And, you know, Rishi Sunak's got a similar one. So it's not as if this isn't um, an agenda that's shared across across kind of political parties, because it is. Uh, the, the city thing is quite interesting. I mean, Manchester and Birmingham get a lot of attention, as they did during the research phase of this. And, and there's a, it's a very... Um, I mean, there's a lot of very interesting stuff on on what you could do across the tertiary space. Lots of stuff that would remind you of Orga, filling in that missing middle, the sub-degree provision and institutions and funding. Um, lots of kind of reminding us how badly FE has been funded and managed. Um, but but as as you know as as you say it's um it's also saying look we just we just need more from Manchester and Birmingham and that includes more graduates um, I mean hundreds of thousands of more graduates living and working in 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 these kind of two second and third cities and I'll leave readers listeners uh, to decide you know which is second and which is third because obviously that matters to people in Manchester and Birmingham Manchester always say that kind of you know London's second but. Um, this report really doesn't quite bear that out. Uh, so, so you, you know, lots, lots in there. I, I, I would make one criticism, which is that this is this is very supply side. It's very, it's very kind of treasury style, and it's thinking, you know, fix the supply side and stuff will change. And I think kind of um, we we do need to think rather more about how the demand side works, not just in Manchester and Birmingham, but across the economy as a whole. What is it uh, about the behaviours on the demand side, whether it's firms? not investing the particular structure of businesses that we've got um institutions that are kind of more interested with the demand side i think to shift some of those problems we need a bit more uh, a bit more of, of of an active government in that space um but um but overall look this is this is just brilliant brilliant work and 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 like i say worth um worth everybody's time to kind of read through and understand that anything that happens to universities in the future will happen as a kind of subset of the issues that are set out in in, in this report. Justine, I guess, you know, the, the, the debate that often comes up is this sense that, you know, you can either control student numbers and that will mean no expansion and a reduction in the number of students and you know Whitehall getting it wrong or you can have a demand-led system where students can go and study whatever they want wherever they want and so on and I guess there's something going on here that's neither of those isn't there which is about being more deliberate about what students study where they study it and then where they sort of exist for the first three or four years of their graduate life. Yeah, and I'd written down when I was looking at this um, supply and demand as well and, and matching um, those areas. And let's not forget, you know, there is still a massive inequity. I was looking at the UCAS numbers as well um, in terms of participation from a widening participation point of view. Let's not forget, you know, 50% of 18-year-olds in London go to university, less than 30% in the northeast, right? So, so there is still a gap if we're going to drive this economic growth that the report talks about that needs to be addressed um, and it's not an either or. I think it's very easy to get into this. Well, it's either a technical route or, it, you know, as Andy said, it's that 50% don't go or let more than 50% don't go. We need to focus on that. Um, Leeds is obviously the first city. I'll just put that out there as well. But um, there is a real importance around um, cities acro across the region, right? Devolution is part of the answer. Um, so, you know, the um, trailblazing deal in Manchester, the integrated technical education system that they're looking at, the MBAC, you know, really important um, around this inclusive growth story. Uh, it's not just about growth or trickle down economics. It's actually, you know, as this report has said, you've got to address these inequalities. Um, and giving people control in those cities is really important over education budgets and autonomy and coming back to what we're talking about, certainty and having that certainty of funding, right, to think about these things. You're not going to shift the education system in a year or two years. This is a 10-year um, sort of program of change, isn't it, to get this education system, technical education system, um, match supply and demand. Um, and, you know, to your point on businesses, businesses are changing um, rapidly. Their, their needs are changing rapidly. Um, you know, KPMG, we're an accountancy business. We're also, um, you know, doing a lot of technical work, digital work. We need um, system architects. We need accountants. We, you know, there's a whole range of skills that we need um, in those cities. Um, that we've been talking about. So we need to step forward as well and work with institutions across the education spectrum, uh, helping them inform the curriculum. Again, there's more to be done around partnerships 
um, and, and really active participation, I think, from business in shaping curriculum, not dictating what universities teach, but supporting and bringing real world experience and case studies, etc. I think that's much more can be done in that space. Michael, I was reading the uh, the, the section on, uh, you know, how to pay for it all, which was, you know, interesting. Um, but the thing that I was reflecting on the most was every, all the way through the report, I was thinking how many different Whitehall government departments would need to be in the same room and on the same page to make some of this work for some of these places. And that that is a real problem, isn't it? Because, you know, to some extent to make this work, government is going to have to rewire and devolve. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> As um, as Andy said, it does feel a lot like this is something for a future Labour Treasury um, to be thinking about. Um, but there is, you know, and Treasury is the big beast in in, in the centre of government. But you know, as, as we are seeing with our current government at the moment, it's not the only thing. There's lots of moving parts, um, and you know, Labour will be in a very different. You know, they'll potentially be. You know, you think they're going to be a more united government, but all the signs are at least to begin with. Um, but they're going to have um, they're going to have a conservative opposition if they, you know, assuming they win the next general election and are looking to implement these sort of you know big um, supply side treasury driven reforms that have all kinds of consequences around the immigration system around you know spending on different aspects of education around things like the nhs workforce planning and all, all these things are connected they all have the potential to become sort of discrete attack lines from a future opposition that will be accusing them of you know sort of doing something to support manchester say which is uh, you know leading to you know towns getting neglected or is you know there's there's all sorts of possibilities and it does at this time of sort of peak uncertainty um it, it does feel quite tough to see something like this happening i mean you know th this this um title of ending stagnation right which is very much about the sort of economic stagnation and but all the way through i just couldn't help feeling that it feels we're really suffering from a corresponding political stagnation you know as as a country not i don't just mean the government here that also needs to be sort of tackled about you know can we think big about things can we do big changes you know can parties have the confidence to do things that they believe in but they know will be an attack line against them um you know the signs are not great at the moment but you can only hope. Andy, when I was uh, at a Labour Party conference this year, I kept moving from fringe to fringe where I was going to fringe meetings that were of peripheral direct relevance to HE. So I was in a fringe about, you know, the state of town centres and then I was in a, you know, and so on and so on. And what struck me most was I don't want to be in any of these fringes. I just want to be in a fringe about Nottingham or I just want to be in a fringe about Manchester. And so, and that, I mean, that, that is very, very difficult stuff, isn't it, to pull it off? It is. Uh, were you lost? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a big conference, wasn't it, this year? So, uh, look, I think, I think it is, but I think, I think it's a really, really important challenge for, for universities. I think, I mean, there are, there are some things, if you moved around some of the bits of the fringe that, that I moved in in this report that Labour will be uncomfortable with. I mean, it says, for example... You know the, the government, the next government will need to change the fiscal rules. Uh, it says that that one of the ways to get devolution going is lots of fiscal devolution, uh, and Labour don't seem very keen on either of those <laughs> uh, things at the moment. Uh, particularly not as they go into kind of campaign mode for a general election. You know they they they'll fall over themselves to say they're they're not going to break fiscal rules or change them from the kind of current conservative uh, model. Um, but I think for universities, I think I think I why that's crucial and why town centres are crucial and why Nottingham is crucial, why Manchester is crucial, why uh, you know why all of that regional underperformance is uh, is crucial. And this this applies in London too. There's been a big kind of productivity slowdown in London. Um, the implication is that if if that continues to happen, then there's less opportunity to subsidise the the sort of uh, 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 poorer performing places of which we have many. But but the 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 kind of existential strategic challenge for universities I think is this it's it's that over the last 20 or 30 years we've been very happy all of us in universities whether whether we're talking about graduates undergraduates or whether we're talking about R&D to work on this kind of supply side model we take the money and we, we we produce this stuff and we chuck it at the market and the assumption is that it will get deployed and utilized and everything will be great what what this report is saying is that we've done that and and that hasn't shifted <laughs> so um you know if we want to be in those policy debates 
rates, if we want to get kind of more resource, if we want more of that long termism, that stability, that kind of, you know, kind of less uh, uh, crazy sort of policy environment, what we need to do is to move from that supply side, look, everything's going to be fine if we just produce more of this stuff, to a really hard set of strategies and conversations about how do the things that we produce get deployed and used in the economy and the labour market, whether that's our graduates earning salaries or our local economies going from kind of also runs in the OECD to something that sustains better, better, better jobs, better uh, uh, firm performance, uh, better local economic conditions, and that and that then flows down to high streets and the quality of public services and all the rest of those things. Um, and I think I think it's a it's it's a crossroads for universities because we either start to read these kind of reports and think what can we do differently to change this. Or we stick our heads in the sand and say, all we've got to do is just keep doing what we've always done, producing more of this stuff. And and all of those application utilisation issues are somebody else's problem. They're not, they're ours. So that's about it for this year. Remember, to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Justine, Andy, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. We'll be back early next year. Have a fantastic Christmas break. And until then, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.